And I have with me my wonderful co-host, as well as a very, very, very <laughs> exciting guest. Um, but I'm going to let um, my co-host introduce themselves. Hey, everyone. This is Amayo. Hello, everyone. This is Ife. Hey, guys. This is Omnyeka, a.k.a. Yeka-O. Amazing. And so, like I said earlier, we have a very exciting guest, and his name is Wale Lawal. And Wale describes himself on Twitter as a lean, mean Nigerian machine. So, obviously, <laughs> from that description, <laughs> um, Wale is Nigerian, and he is also the editor-in-chief of The Republic, a bi-monthly magazine um, that focuses on social, um, socioeconomic and political commentary, as well as criticism and cultural discourse. Wale also holds a master's in history from the London School of Economics, and he also holds a bachelor's in economics from the University of Bath. And all this degree dropping will become, <laughs> will become, you know, oh <laughs> it will become relevant as the episode goes on. <laughs> but welcome, Wally. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Um, I was going to say that, that was very, that was very specific. That was Thor. Um, so I'm guessing that you guys have clearly done some research that I probably wasn't, you know, anticipating, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy, you know, to have these, to have these conversations. So. Thank you. Thank you again. So before we dive into the meat of the conversation, um, I just wanted us to start with a little bit of your background for those who don't know who you are, unlike myself, who has been following you for a while. So those who are not super fans like myself, I want them to know who Wale is. And first of all, we can start with um, what sparked your interest in history and economics in general, because, you know, from your degrees, it seems like you do have like a deep interest in those topics and why are those topics important to you? Uh, let me see. Uh, when I, uh, let me see. When I started in um, A-levels, I think it wasn't really, you know, economics for me. It was more, to be honest, visual art. So, you know, not just art, but also the arts from a very, um, from a very, you know, theoretical perspective, a very academic perspective. But then when I went to A-levels, when I went to, you know, England for boarding school, I kind of just, you know, fell in love with economics because there was a different way in which, you know, I was being taught the subject. And I didn't think, you know, that, you know, um, learning economics was, you know, um, in Nigeria was maybe of, you know, of any lesser quality. It was just that I guess maybe I was older and I could kind of, you know, and I probably started reading The Economist at the same time, uh, you know, within that period, I think I was around 14, 15. And I could just see how, you know, economics made sense and how, you know, it kind of just explained, you know, human wants really and how, you know, human wants are, fi- are, are infinite, you know, but bordered by, you know, you know, the finiteness of, you know, resources. So there's only so much that you can get, you know, even though your desires might be, you know, limitless. And then um, I started studying that. And then, you know, for uni, I studied it as well because I kind of really enjoyed it. 
but then in uni, it was very different. It was very, you know, quantitative. It was more of maths. It was more of using graphs to explain human behavior. And for some reason, I kind of, I mean, I was still good at it, but then I just felt a bit of distance, you know, from this subject that I really enjoyed because it really just, you know, it really was getting down into the philosophy of people's wants and people's, you know, um, and people's needs. And so when I finished from undergrad, I kind of just felt a bit jaded with economics. I thought maybe I was wondering if I just done like, you know, a maths course. And Mm. then I decided that, okay, you know what, I'd come back to Nigeria to do my NYSC. And while I was doing my NYSC, I realized that I didn't really have enough of a context or of a Nigerian context. Um, at this time, I'd been reading a lot. Um, I'd always been reading African literature. I studied literature in, you know, in secondary school. Um, but then I realized that I didn't have a way of making economics apply to, you know, the environment that I was in and the environment in which I was going to be spending, you know, most of my life. So I decided I'd go back. Um, I would study history, um, economic history as a kind of, as a way to transition into, you know, more, um, you know, less quantitative stuff. I really wanted to get down into the meat of, you know, more sociology, um, and just kind of understanding more of human behavior. So I started, you know, I started with history and, you know, African history is very, it's, it's not the most pleasant, you know, of histories. Mm. It's not, well, I guess you can say that, you know, about history itself, but like African history is, you know, and reading or learning African history as an African itself, you know, there's a lot that you go through, you know, one of which, you know, is the fact that you're not going to be taught if you, you know, if you go to a good school, you're not going to be taught African history by an African person. So that's one thing that, you know, that happens, you know, within this, I guess, within this politics of trying to understand more about where you come from. So, I mean, I did that and I really enjoyed, you know, history because it put a lot of things into context. And, you know, I tell a lot of people that, you know, studying history is, you know, like, it's, it's like a gift and a curse, really. It's, it's like, you know, asking to be able to see dead people, you know, and because whenever you look at things, you can kind of see the history behind it. And the history behind it, especially as an African, is not very pleasant. So I guess with me, it's more of this person who is interested in, I guess, the general Nigerianness, really. And how I kind of explore that Nigerianness is through, I guess, economics and through, increasingly nowadays history and of course through literature and art as well so it's a very broad i mean my my interests are quite broad and it's not always easy to keep you know to keep up with it but i think that they're all connected in a very you know interesting way you know just trying to understand more you know about nigerianness about my own position in the world what does it mean for me being a nigerian and you know if and how you know can i you know live in this world you know better you know, what, what, what resources do I need um, to live in this world better as a Nigerian? So these are all the things that I'm kind of using, you know, to learn and understand that, including the Republic even. Yeah, I think that was, you know, what, in, what even led me to doing it in the first place. And that's a great segue. So how did all these essentially converge to um, you creating, the founding the Republic and... So far, what have been the challenges, but also the rewards of running such a publication? Sure. Um, so I started the Republic when I was in my final year of, of, I mean, it was a one year program when I was in like the final few months of my, um, master's degree. So what, what is interesting about the Republic is that, um, initially I had intended to, you know, write it as a TV show. So I have like some experience in film 
um, and in film writing. And I mean, I've done, and I do writing on the side as well. So I had always had this idea about this, you know, this firm or this, you know, newspaper that was running in the 90s. And it was kind of, you know, going to explore, you know, the 90s in Nigeria and perhaps even some years leading up to that. And it was going to be called The Republic. Um, and so I'd started writing it. I'd kind of, you know, fleshed out a few of the characters and everything. And I really, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of Mad Men, you know, and I think that the writing on the show is completely brilliant. So I thought, you know, I'd probably be able to do something like this with the Republic. And then the more I, you know, the more I got into it, the more I realized that, you know, come like this thing, you know, should actually be real, you know, should be, um, something that, you know, exists and you should probably start because the issues that I was trying to highlight with, the TV show were the same issues that I was still facing. The fact that, you know, um, there's a kind of censorship on knowledge in Nigeria. Knowledge is very, it's very inaccessible. So I kind of just, you know, so, so my thinking there was that, okay, so how do you create knowledge, you know, and how do you create knowledge in a way that is, you know, led by young people that is for young people. Um, and for me, it was kind of, you know, two things really, it was finding a way to actually create new knowledge, like bringing something that people don't know, you know, um, into existence and also making already existing knowledge more accessible. So the Republic's mission, of course, is to create knowledge. And I think that those are the two principles that we work on, whether it's to actually create new knowledge or to make, you know, knowledge more accessible. So when I was my final year of, you know, of my master's degree and I was, you know, studying history and I came across, you know, different philosophers, you know, one of whom was Franz Fanon. And he has this incredible, um, incredible quote where, you know, which goes that every, you know, each generation must, you know, discover its mission, um, fulfill it or betray it. It's a much longer, longer quote than that. But I think that those, those are my, you know, my favorite parts of it, that each generation must discover its mission, really. And I just thought that, you know, this is the mission that I have, you know, in exploring knowledge from a Nigerian perspective, in trying to, you know, um, get a group of people together who are interested in intelligence and who are interested in making knowledge more accessible. So, I mean, I started it from then, was kind of laying, you know, the groundwork, the foundation and all of that. And then my plan was that I would come back to Nigeria for um, a few years and develop this idea. Um, and I really wanted to get, you know, really far on this idea because I'd been to Nigeria before I'd moved back from my NYC and I was kind of exposed to how you can come back to Nigeria with certain ideas, but then it just gets very slow. And I'd seen a lot of people come back with really interesting, you know, ideas and those ideas would suddenly just, you know, fizzle out. So I'd kind of laid down the groundwork here and then I moved back to Nigeria and I moved back and I was really, you know, you know, pumped and I was really optimistic, you know, even probably even idealistic to some extent. And I had this whole idea where I would go across Nigeria and I was kind of just like meeting university people and meeting professors. And I was doing that for some time, you know, until I realized that, you know, even in academia in Nigeria, there's, you know, the politics that you encounter, it's, it's a very, it's not as straightforward, you know, as you would think. And not everyone thinks, oh, you know, you're starting a journal. Let me, you know, support it or let me, you know, hear you out or, um, and it, 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 it was surprising at the beginning, but I think, you know, over time, I learned to kind of just get used to it where, you know, you'd ask, um, you'd reach out to people and it was either they wouldn't respond or, you know, they respond, but then their response was more towards, you know, so what's in it for me and things like that. So my thinking, you know, my thinking then just became, okay, um, 
let me, you know, if I keep on chasing these people, it kind of just looks like you're seeking people's permission, right? And I have, I have a friend who, um, I'd been speaking to at the time and was giving me, you know, advice. Um, and she was like, you know, for some things you don't need permission. Like all of this that you're doing is to kind of get some validation that you have a solid idea. Why not just chase the idea in the first place and see, you know, what happens. And so I started it. Um, I'd kind of, you know, compiled the first issue and, you know, I had gotten to meet some really incredible people that would, you know, become members of the team, you know, one of whom is um, Hussein um, Ahmed, for example. And, you know, together we were really working on compiling, you know, um, a first issue. And it was so important, I think, at the time that the first issue be, you know, an issue on feminism. And because I think that, you know, it's such a huge topic. It's such an important topic. It's something that a lot of Nigerians talk about, but something that a lot of Nigerians do not understand. It's something that a lot of Nigerians um, have not been able to contextualize because, you know, they've not been given the right frameworks, the right texts um, to, to read and the right references. So, I mean, nowadays I'm kind of more looking at, you know, those kind of mechanisms, you know, what is missing, you know, what is the crucial information or the crucial knowledge that's missing from people that prevents them from being able to have critical discussions or to understand, you know, especially critical social discussions. And I realized that, for me, that is where I always want, I wanted to play at because, I mean, I was coming from a history of, you know, social justice warriorship where it was kind of like you're cancelled. You know, I'm not listening to what you're saying. What you're saying is bullshit. Um, <laughs> obviously you're an idiot. I mean, I wouldn't call people an idiot to, <laughs> to their faces, but then that was what I was implying. And then I, I mean, and then, you know, Trump won the elections and then, you know, I think even before that Brexit, you know, <laughs> the whole thing with Brexit happened. So I was kind of, you know, you know, going through a situation where the entire world had kind of just, you know, just fizzled out. And it just revealed to me that, you know, I was probably living in an echo chamber where, you know, because of this idea that I don't want to entertain your opinions, you know, I know what is right and I don't want to hear from your side. What is what I'm saying is right. You know, I think we should be this way. We should, you know, be more liberal. We should be this way, that way. And, 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 and I just started feeling like by doing that, I'd kind of closed myself off, you know, from, you know, the reality of the world, which was a world in which people were getting tired of experts, a world in which people were, you know, no longer, you know, swayed by, you know, numbers or economics. They were looking at social issues. You know, it wasn't enough to tell people that, you know, in America or in the West, for example, that you're going to, you know, raise, you're going to raise employment levels or you're going to reduce unemployment. Now people were trying to figure out if you, if you increase the amount of jobs, are you increasing the amount of jobs for white people or are you increasing the amount of jobs for ethnic minorities? And those subtle differences had become important. So it wasn't just about, you know, the usual things about telling people that, you know, vote for this person because, you know, obviously this is the right person for the job. People were more attuned to social, you know, to their social needs and they were voicing that. But then obviously, you know, standing as a liberal, you're thinking, well, these are all idiots, you know, I mean, why can't you be more accepting? Why can't you be, you know, why can't you ask for more diversity? And it just closed, you know, it was, a, it's something that, you know, Zadie Smith refers to as a kind of solipsism where you just think that, you know, you're the only one that exists really, <laughs> or you're the only one with views that matters. And all that ever just does is close you off from the things that are, you know, that are happening. So 
my thinking was then that, okay, if this is how the world is going, and I think that for a while, you know, it had been the way that Nigeria was going because in Nigeria, you know, it's, it's Nigeria's, Nigerian politics is fairly populist in the sense that it doesn't appeal to, mm-hmm. it's not looking at people's, it's not looking to, you know, improve, you know, the lives of people by any measurable metrics. Yeah. It's looking to just send a message of I'm Christian, I'm Muslim, I'm from this part of Nigeria, you know, vote for me because of that. So when people were saying, you know, when the big journals or the big, you know, experts were saying, oh my God, we're witnessing a rise of populism. I was like, well, mm, we've kind of not, we're not witnessing a rise in populism. My populism has always been there, yeah, especially when you yeah. look at, you know, um, African countries or the countries, you know, emerging, you know, in emerging, you know, economies or things like that. So I was kind of like, okay, well, if this is the context that we have, then I think that when you're approaching Nigeria in terms of knowledge creation, you need to be more sociological. You need to start investing in ways in which you can get people to understand social frameworks. You need to, you know, you need to get people. I mean, if you're, you know, speaking about the basics, you need to find a way to communicate to people that when you tell, you know, that when you say that men are trash, I'm, you're not talking to someone specifically, <laughs> you know, you're talking about the institution of, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. of men, you know, and it's so tricky. getting people, you know, getting people to understand that is very difficult, especially in, in Nigeria, you know, because first thing people want to tell you is that, oh, feminism is an African, it's this Western thing. And so when we were designing, you know, the first issue, it's very important to kind of, you know, dig up those references that will tell people that, look, you know, looking for equality, especially when it's a female oriented, you know, quest for equality is not an un-African thing. You know, it's happened, you know, in the past, it's ongoing as well, you know, so it's not something that is, you know, a kind of neo-colonial, you know, way of thinking. So, I mean, we did that. We published that. It was, you know, it caught fire. Um, I mean, I was completely surprised because honestly, I was afraid that, you know, people wouldn't understand what we were trying to do. And it was very important for me to, you know, put out something that was of good quality right from the get-go. So I believe in growth from something good. I'm not going to, you know, put out something that's missing, you know, that's full of typos or illogical, you know, that, that doesn't make any sense, you know, and think I can grow from that. I needed to put, you know, we needed to put out something that was really good. And when we did that, you know, the, you know, the feedback that we got was incredible. You know, people reaching out, people sending emails, telling us that, wow, you know, this is what they've been looking for. And it's literally just been like that, you know, over time. In terms of the feedback, yes, we've gotten some incredible feedback from people and places that I would never have, you know, imagined. But at the same time, it's not that, you know, it hasn't been without its, you know, challenges. You know, I hear people, people who see me, I've had people meet me or find me at airports and they're like, you know, I like what you're doing. But don't you think it's a bit too heavy? Don't you think it's a bit too risky? Don't you think, you know, um, you're going to anger some politicians by, you know, running this journal? Don't you think, you know, don't you think it's a little too long and things like that? Or the stuff that you publish is a little too long or too rigorous or too heavy? And for me, you know, my thinking was that um, it's not. I think that what we're trying to do is be very clear that our mission here is not, we're not interested, honestly, in you know, witch hunting politicians, honestly, like for me, that is a, that is a huge distraction from our work. Our work is to create, you know, knowledge is to make people more knowledgeable so that they kind of know how to think about their society and how to process what they deserve from their society. So my focus was more on, you know, creating knowledge independently, knowledge that isn't swayed towards a a particular political party or even to some extent ideology. So I always like to tell people that my 
my own thinking is very different, you know, to the Republic's thinking. The Republic is a platform, you know, and what we try to do is have an independent, you know, independent platform where people can come and share ideas, right? Now, I, as the editor, you know, may not agree with those ideas, but my job is to make sure that those ideas are clear and, you know, have, are based on facts and are rigorous enough, you know, to meet the standard of what we publish, you know, so that for me has just, you know, it's, and then it's been negotiating that with people, you know, trying to ensure, you know, trying to tell people that, look, what we're publishing is important, you know, the length, yes, it's, you know, we have long reads, but then where else are you going to read long reads that are critical about Nigeria? Where else are you going to see ideas fleshed out? When else are you going to even learn, you know, about topics to, you know, at such great depths? So for me, it's kind of like, you know, I'm interested in that, you know, and it's something that I, you know, that I feel that is so needed. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, we've kind of, you know, just kept that kind of publishing standard. But then at the same time, I realized that, of course, you also need to be accommodating to what your readers, you know, require. So it's not to say that, oh, we're only going to be ever publishing long reads. There, There is, you know, um, a plan for, you know, perhaps shorter pieces and things like that. But obviously those will come in time. Um, but it won't take away from, you know, what we're trying to do with the longer, more critical pieces. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, in terms of like, you know, great feedback from people, challenges just being that, yeah, a lot of people will come back and say, well, do you think Nigerians want to read something this long? Do you think, you know, Nigerians want to, <laughs> want to be, you know, um, want to be, this knowledge, it's, it's really, it's very weird. It's people coming to you to say, Oh, I don't think Nigerians, you know, um, Nigerians are, you know, Nigerians want to be, um, you know, want, want to be this aware of things. I don't think Nigerians are this aware of things. I don't think Nigerians will understand, um, what, you know, your, what you're trying to, um, you know, say to them and things like that. But I mean, when you live in a world in which, you know, 11 year olds are making, you know, compelling, you know, arguments mm-hmm. about, you know, gun control right. in America. When you live in a world where, um, and mind you, 11 year old black, you know, female students, you mm-hmm. know, making that kind of, yeah. kind of claim and telling you that, you know, you're not too young, you know, you're not too young to be aware. Uh, I can't remember her name, but she is, but she was part of, you know, this, you know, um, March for Our Lives, really. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to remember yeah, her name. From Virginia. I forget her name. Exactly. Her name is Naomi um, um, Wadler. So, I mean, when you're looking at 11-year-olds telling you that you're not too young, you know, to be aware. And she had this Women of the World. Um, she, you know, she had this discussion at Women of the World. And she was like, you know, you're not too young to be aware. Um, you're not too young, you know, to, you know, to demand, you know, changes from your society. When you're looking at South Africa, you know, where you had, you know, these 13 year old girls, you know, being told that, you know, they shouldn't have Afros and they could stand mm-hmm. up to their, you know, to their schools and tell them that, you know, this is actually racist. You know, it comes from a place where, you know, it comes from a place where you know what you deserve and knowing what you mm-hmm. deserve is informed by knowledge it's informed by facts it's informed by Mm -hmm. the things that you've read and the knowledge that you've been exposed to we don't have that here you know i couldn't have done any of that when i was 11 when i was 13 i could (laughs) not have you know stood up to honestly like there's no i mean who do you i mean who do you want to you know what do you want to call you know and sometimes you know we forget that you know at that age really you're, you're you're at a very impressionable age and i think that one thing that really 
one thing that really stood out to me was again Naomi Wadler. There was a time, there was a part of um, you know, a speech that she gave where she was referencing Toni Morrison. Do you know what that means? You know, when an eleven-year-old yeah. black girl is referencing Toni Morrison, you know, it has come full circle. Is what I'm thinking. You know, this is how you transfer knowledge generationally. There's no way, or rather intergenerationally, you know, there's no way she's not going to, you know, there's no way Toni Morrison will not, you know, persevere because these are the people who are going to carry her words. And, you know, these are the people who are, you know, who, who, who have been born, you know, to, to believe that those words are important and those words, are, you know, are, you know, validate them. So Wale, you actually said, sorry, so you actually said something about knowledge, which actually is great to segue into our conversation about history's role and importance in the present. Sure, so you, sure. So one, so one tweet that actually inspired me to, because I've been following you for a while, but your tweet, a recent tweet that inspired me to invite you um, to be a mm-hmm. guest on this podcast is, um, I think in March you tweeted, do you know how wild it is that we are some of the most uninformed about our own history that we still don't Mm -hmm. get to determine what counts or doesn't count as our history end of quote um and you had mentioned in a tweet that it was inspired by um a tour you did where uh, a guide in Badagri began the history of Lagos with Europeans. Yeah. (laughs) um, So that's, you know, I just also want us to talk about like knowledge about our history and how, you know, specifically Nigeria's history can become Mm -hmm. very malleable to whoever is in power Mm -hmm. and how people twist that. But also as Nigerians having that knowledge, like you said, and being mm-hmm. able to contextualize our experience, but everybody else can jump in. But one question I did have was, what is the function of historical knowledge and how does mm-hmm. it serve our present experiences as individuals, sure. but also as a nation? Um, mm-hmm. So anybody else, Wale, Ife, Onyeka, Amayo? Um, so, I mean, for me, it's, you know, um, history or historical knowledge, you know, helps to contextualize things. It helps you to you know, it gives an added dimension, you know, to, to things. And I think that nothing is a historical, nothing, you know, exists outside of, I mean, let me not, you know, let me not say that because even history is, you know, quite political. And, um, when you silence communities, I was going to say, for example, that nothing exists out of history, which would be true if, you know, human beings were not responsible for shaping history because history itself mm. is very dodgy, right? Because, you yeah. know, like, yeah. A lot of times, you know, we romanticize history and, you know, mm. we're so like, oh my God, it's history. It's, you know, history. Don't touch that history. Um, yeah. But then one thing that you realize is in the past few years, for example, with, you know, the roads must fall in South Africa, for example, or even the statues that are being, you know, removed in America, is that you realize just how, you know, malleable history is. You get to determine to some extent your history and mm-hmm. history is determined by yeah. people. You know, history is... it's it's kind of like an instrument of, you know, understanding, you know, yourself through time, really. And what you realize about history is that, for example, you know, a statement like, you know, nothing exists out of history is not exactly true because you have situations where communities get silenced. And when they get silenced, Mm -hmm. for example, Mm -hmm. they get excluded from history. You know, for, you know, and... For most, I mean, for most of African history, for example, pre-colonial history, any history that we had, you know, um, before, you know, white people came or Europeans came or whatever, is kind of Im- left to the imagination, really. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, 
Except if you're looking at maybe, you know, Sheikh Anter Diop has this incredible book called The History of Black Civilization, which tries to, you know, really explore, um, which tries to explore pre-colonial African societies. But then you realize that that is just one of a very, very limited number of attempts because, of course, these mm-hmm. histories are difficult to locate. You know, it's, it's, it's a very, very, and honestly, it's, it's something that, you know, when you think about is very sad because, you know, you have other areas of the world that are able to reach back into like, you know, yeah. the second century yeah. and can, yeah. you know, understand, you know, to understand, you know, where they're coming from, you know, but you don't have that asset, Ugh. you know, you don't have that or you do, but it's sitting in some British museum. So it's, <laughs> you know, so, so history is a very, very, it's history is never really neutral. It's, because it's mm-hmm. always, it's used by different, you know, it's used by different parties for different things. But I think that nowadays, right, we're, we're really seeing, and it's really incredible and wonderful to see, um, especially on the internet, for example, where you see a lot of interest in, you know, African history and ha- in African heritage. Um, and not just, you know, interest from a very, you know, you know, banal or just very, you know, plain or unexciting, you know, place, but it's interest that is also, you know, cool, you know, like it's, it's cool to know about this history, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at, you know, style, you're looking at, you know, you're looking at the art and you're not just looking at it as something that, Oh, look at what these guys are doing. You're looking at something that can actually influence or, you know, have a conversation with you, even though you're, you know, separate times apart or rather two different times, um, at two different times. So, and I think that, that, you know, that is what history does. It contextualizes things. You know, for example, I can't look at sugar. You know, I can't look at sugar nowadays and not think of, you know, um, plantations in Brazil, you know, so, <laughs> so it does that, you know, it does that as well, you know, or, or, or when, you know, the Ebola crisis happens and, you know, you can kind of spot the patterns in responses where, you know, France is responding or, you know, giving, you know, slightly more attention to Francophone countries and England is, you know, giving more attention to Anglophone countries. You know, these things have historical, you know, meaning. They don't just come mm-hmm. from, you know, from, from, from no place. They perpetuate yeah. as well some historical you know, some historical, you know, events and, you know, and when you're, when you're looking at Nigeria, for example, you know, Nigerians, we like to think that we're very, you know, original and a lot of the things that we do, you know, we created, you know, Ankara is one of our things. It's not really, you know, but so, you know, you know, you know, and I mean, I mean, I like a good Ankara, but I think it just, it's just good to know, you know, you know, what you're claiming is yours yeah. and as yours mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean that you know ownership cannot change over time you know that mm-hmm. for example yeah. you know one of my things one of my things right now is is thinking around whether you know africans can stake an ownership in english you know for example you know this language mm-hmm. that was forced on us you know um that you know that, that you know that was used as an instrument of colonization and etc but then I always wonder, like, what does it mean for me as someone who can speak Yoruba, you know, uh, but uh, thinks in English? So what does that mean for me? Does that mean that English isn't mine? You know, does that mean that the English that I speak, which is not necessarily British English, which is different from American English and different from South African English and Australian English, does that mean that the one I speak, mm-hmm. the Nigerian English that I speak, the trafficates that I use that doesn't really exist in dictionaries. <laughs> <laughs> <you know? laughs> 
you know, does that mean that reality, you know, does that mean that reality is invalid? So mm. one of the, and but mm. the thing is, you know, when you know the history of where these things come from, you know, when you know that this was a language that was used, you know, to colonize your people, to eradicate, you know, or to change your people's, you know, sense of meaning, I think it just helps you understand, you know, more or, you know, have a position on, yeah. you know, on those things, on, on, on those, you know, things in present time. So I have a position on English, which is that it's mine, you know, for example. <laughs> Yeah, but I also think, like, having new historical knowledge also has you, like, you're not out there looking like an ass, like a fool. You know, like, you know what you're talking about. Like, I went to a restaurant in Philly a couple of years ago, and I was claiming that Nigerians created jollof. And this Senegalese lady was just looking at me, like, she was, like, oh, waiting, no. for, she was waiting for me to finish. Oh, no. And then when I finished, she was like, are you doing that? I was like, I was like uh-huh. and she was like, and then she, like, broke it down for me. And she was like, what does jollof mean? And I was like, and I was just, like, looking like it's a jollof. fish out of water. I just gave it. Exactly. I think also it's one of those things, like, if you don't read, if you exactly. don't know your history, like you literally be red and you'll be out there looking like a fool. So mm. you'll be out there loud and wrong. Exactly. I yeah. have a question for Wally. Okay, sure. Sure. Sorry, I, I'm kind of drawing back to um how you started um answering the first question. Um so you know when you talked about how the Republic was once like a, an idea for a TV series. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you still play with that idea? Is that still something that you consider um, doing at some point, or it's gone? It's now the journal, and that's it. Oh no! So, so <laughs> no. So one thing with me is that ideas. I mean, ideas never leave. They never leave me. Um, okay. So actually, um, I've been trying to convince myself that the two can actually, you know, exist side by side. Um, I'm thinking maybe it would come under a different name. Um, or maybe not actually, I don't know. So, but the thing is that I've been, cause I, I'd worked on this idea for, you know, for a very long time. And I think that it's something that, it's something that could work because I mean, and this is kind of, I mean, it's kind of like a secret, but it's not really a secret, right? But then the idea behind okay. it was, yes, it's about this newspaper and it's, you know, supposed to be about, you know, how a few people come up, you know, you know, along, you know, the whole journalism ranks and then their lives, you know, start getting threatened because, they start challenging, you know, you know, military, you know, dictators and things like that. But more than that, it's actually supposed to be, you know, an attempt at exploring Nigerian history and especially a part yeah. of Nigerian history that one, not many people know about. Um, also not many people, um, have again the con, you know, the range, you know, to, <laughs> to discuss and also one that not, not many people, you know, um, I don't know if it's courage, right? But not many people want to attempt. It's something like, okay, you know, I don't want to speak about, you know, um, you know, General Abacha, for example, because, you know, I mean, you know, there's his family still exists, etc., etc. So, um, you know, it's a lot of things, you know, it's a lot of those things, right? Um, but I think this is a show that was supposed to cover that. It was supposed to cover how, you know, those types of, governments you know really affected people's lives and it was supposed to cover how you know a group of people very young people actually you know um so yeah um no so i don't think no so i don't think that um i don't think the idea is gone i think it's very much still there um but i think i also like to pace myself i'm also very realistic 
about how I approach, you know, my own creative work. Because I mean, I have a nine to five, right? Um, Uh but so it's very paced, um, and it gives me a lot of time to kind of really, you know, dig into the stories that we're trying to tell with, um, whatever, you know, outlet, um, that we, you know, that we're planning on using. So yes, it's definitely, Uh definitely still in the works. Yeah. I mean, that's, I asked because it's something that I'd, you know, definitely be interested in consuming. Um, so yeah, definitely, um, looking forward to that. Okay. Sorry. No, you're fine. Um, I, I just thinking or going off of the what the question that Ifeanyi asked earlier, mm-hmm. um, just about knowledge of our history. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I hear this very often. You know, in different sectors, right? That getting data in Nigeria is difficult. Mm-hmm. Like the information is just not mm-hmm. there. Um, and very often, it mm-hmm. just has me thinking about. You know, is is the inaccessibility of knowledge on on certain things as relates to Nigeria mm-hmm. as a result of the fact that maybe um, this knowledge is protected, whether it's for malintentions or whatever, or um, as a result of the fact that there is a lack of knowledge curators, um, people who actually mm-hmm. care or are interested mm-hmm. in, you know, saying, okay, maybe you can digest this knowledge in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out and I'm going to actually um, make this accessible to you in some way, make it digestible. Um, and, mm. and that's just something that I, I, mm. I toy with all the time. It's like, okay, yes, we have this problem of inaccessibility, but is it as a result of the fact that there are people who one, maybe mm-hmm. don't see going into this career path as something that's potentially fruitful for them and their families um, in the long run. So if I choose to be a historian, you know, in mm-hmm. college, I had tons of friends who were like museum mm-hmm. studies and I'm just like, okay, cool. That's great. Um, you know, but for them, that's what they love to do. And it might not make them a lot of money, but that's something mm-hmm. that they feel like, um, you know, will help other people digest knowledge better. So do you see that there is a lack of people who are interested in mm-hmm. making this knowledge accessible? Um, so that's actually a very interesting question. It's a good question. Um, but I think, you know, I think it's, it's more complex than that, I think. Mm. Um, the first thing is, yes, of course, wherever you are, you know, there's, um, there's knowledge that will always be, you know, to some extent inaccessible and then perhaps becomes accessible over time. Um, mm. But even, you know, even on a very basic level, right, let's even, you know, speak about the knowledge that, that exists, you know, publicly. Um, mm. It's, it's not that there's, it's not that there's not, you know, it's not that there, there aren't enough curators. I mean, there aren't, you know, in the first place, there aren't, but, you know, there's also the fact that, you know, there's a, I guess there's a deficit in terms of, you know, innovative approaches to, you know, gathering this knowledge or curating this mm. knowledge. You know, I think that one thing that I'm learning as well, because of course, you know, the Republic is, it's a learning process for me. Um, but one thing I'm learning is, is how to kind of build, you know, a, 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 a business model for, you know, for, for, for those types of projects, for those types of creative projects, mm. you know, these are projects that mm-hmm. on the face of it, you know, look like, okay, this thing cannot generate money. Who is going to be interested in this stuff? But, you know, one thing I'm learning, and I keep saying that I'm learning because it's a constant battle, is to look at, for example, what, you know, Linda KG has done or mm-hmm. what is, you know, going on with, you know, Bella Niger, Why Niger, these publications that exist. And I will tell you why, because, you know, 
there's a stigma that people have towards these publications. And I guess people have their own, not necessarily, you know, you know the ones I'm talking about, right? But not necessarily all of them have a certain stigma, right? But then um, if I use Linda Ikeji, for example, because I guess that is less political, um, <laughs> I guess there's a stigma that people have towards it, which is that, okay, well, it's not serious. It's filled with certain kinds of information. You know, why should I be going on it? Blah, 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 blah. You know, I take a different approach to it, right? Nowadays. Um, and my thinking on it is that, well, the same rules apply. You know, it's the same rules that, you know, Linda Ikeji faces that, you know, I would probably face with the Republic, which is that, mm. you know, you have a platform that, you know, thrives on traffic. Now, Linda Ikeji, mm. you know, has her own methods of generating traffic. And now my own question is, what are your own methods of generating traffic? Mm. And one thing that I'm mm. also beginning to realize is that, you know, there's a kind of thinking that, you know, people who, you know, work in knowledge areas, or, you know, in knowledge spaces, you know, I guess like myself have to, you know, start having, which is this need to look beyond, you know, you know, to look or not necessarily to look beyond, but to incorporate, you know, practical, you know, ways of, you know, generating that knowledge, delivering that knowledge into their mission. Uh -huh. I think that we're all just, we're very mission driven. Having a mission is fine, but you know, missions are not self-sustaining. Missions need uh -huh. to be encapsulated in something that preserves that mission and that makes that mission uh -huh. sustainable. So if your mission, for example, is, you know, to gather history, to archive history, what are the systems, uh -huh. what are the models that we're building around that, that will make that, you know, activity you know, sustainable? What kinds of partnerships are you looking to have with existing corporates or companies? How are you even going to, you know, frame the work that you're doing, you know, as something that is interesting, as something that is necessary for people to, you know, for people to have? Now, the reason I brought up Linda KG and those other, you know, publications was not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not even, you know, trying to slander them because I think that these are publications that have been able to create infrastructure, you know, and this is infrastructure that someone like me who is coming in, you know, will benefit from, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, who are on the internet because of these websites and because they're on yeah. the internet, I also have access to them, but I haven't even done any of the work that these guys had to do. Right. So mm -hmm. my thinking is, you know, is to look at those, you know, existing platforms and those existing you know, forms of infrastructure, what can I learn from that? And how can I adapt that into my own, you know, idea? So it's not necessarily that there's not people, there's, you know, there aren't people who are curating. There are lots of people who are curating. Like Instagram is, you know, an incredible outlet for these people. Well, my question is, mm -hmm. is Instagram sustainable? Does Instagram translate to, you know, real engagements, like with, you know, your physical space? Um, I look at, for example, Nollywood, you know, not, I, you know, you know, for, for a very long time, you know, Nollywood was, you know, you know, the mecca of slander. Like you want to slander anything about Nigeria, just slander Nollywood, slander Nollywood. But Nollywood has built incredible infrastructure. You know, it's for any new filmmaker that's coming in, you know, you have an audience literally that's, you know, yeah, waiting for true. you to, you know, to do something. You didn't have to do anything to build that audience, right? Mm -hmm. But then that audience exists for you. And I think that it's the same thing with curators. It's the same thing with, you know, knowledge producers. It's the same thing with culturists. You know, it's just finding if at all it exists, that existing infrastructure. 
and it's learning from those that exist. You know, those, you know, those outlets that, you know, you want to kind of always slander because maybe they're more commercial than critical. But the thing is that you face the same, you know, it's the same, obviously it's different content and different content, you know, is marketed differently, but then to some extent, right, you face the same issues. And I think there's a lot to learn from these guys, you know, in how they've been able to partner with, you know, corporates and how they've been able to engage their audiences, for example. I mean, say what you want to say about Linda Ikeji, but something has to be engaging about her content, you know, to make these people, you know, come back for more. Especially when, you know, you know, people have this idea that it's very light content. So if it's very light, then why do people keep going back? So for me, it's mm-hmm. not necessarily about, you know, what people are reading. It may, I don't even know, you know, it's, 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 it's about the experience of reading it. It's about, you know, feeling like you're part of a community when you read that stuff. And I think that maybe, you know, that is what, you know, I need to probably learn from these people. Um, and then incorporate into, you know, what I'm trying to do. And I think that's probably, it's probably what other, you know, knowledge producers, you know, creators, uh, culturists need to start looking at because these things are so needed in Nigeria. And you find that, you know, the knowledge is there, the content is there. It's then translating that into something that's, you know, interesting to consume, interesting to read or to watch. I mean, one of my favorite Instagram pages right now is um, Nolly Babes, for example. And it's just literally pictures of, you know, old Nollywood style, right? Yeah. And these are like the yeah. funniest, I mean, they have the funniest captions, they have... They have the funniest compositions, but it's, you know, it's even teaching me a different way to look at Nollywood. And that for me is, it's a, it's a way of archiving, right? Right. Because the, um, um, the, the movie names are there, you know, the names of the actors and the actresses are there, but then it's a completely different way of archiving Nollywood. It's, and I think it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's bloody innovative. Like it's so stylish. I didn't, I, I mean, I never even looked at Nollywood, you know, I mean, you know, as stylish, you know, as stylish in that sense. And I can, I, I mean, I get the vibe, you know, now, and I'm kind of like, how did I never see this? Right. And, mm. you know, that for me is an example of how you, you look at the content that, you know, is around you and you make that into something that is actually worth looking at. Right. And I think that, yeah, so it's not that it's not, you know, that it's not only that some information is not accessible. It's also not only that, you know, that we don't have enough people that are, you know, archiving. It's also that we also need to be more innovative and more creative in the way that we archive because it's hard. It's really, really hard. I'm not even going to pretend to anyone. The, you know, dealing with historical content is hard. Finding the content itself is hard, but then it should inspire some innovation is what I'm thinking. And wow. hopefully that innovation can drive, you know, engagement. I just looked mm. up the Nolly Babes page and I'm just, I'm dying. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, you guys, it is, it's that page is great. Stuff. Yeah, it's, it's a, okay. it's, it's incredible. It's an incredible page. <laughs> I'll put, I'll put the link to the account in the podcast show notes. So I want us to talk about, um, assess the value and emphasis that our curriculum, either secondary school, primary school, you know, university mm-hmm. um, placed on teaching history. Like, what are some of the blind spots? I feel like um, due to our education, our slash, um, we're present in our knowledge of Nigeria's history or mm-hmm. history of other African countries in general. But also, I want us to talk about who we think has been erased from our history, and in what ways wow. has our history been reinvented and retold. 
I guess one example is the tweet that um, Wally, you shared about, you know, the guide in Badagri talking about beginning Mm -hmm. um, Lagos history with the Europeans, Mm -hmm. which is just, it's nonsensical, but but it's like some of these things, I don't know, over time you just internalize it and before you know it, you just start spewing it and I don't, yeah, it's crazy. No, I mean, it's a... It's a very, I mean, it's a very, it's a very good question, you know. I remember that there was a time when I was looking at, um, so I was looking at, you know, I'm very interested in, you know, Nigerian national history. And like, um, you know, on my, on my reading list for a while has, you know, has been, you know, these biographies of, you know, Fumilayo Ransom Kuti, you know, Bafemi Awolowo, you know, these people. Um, but then one thing that always interests me is how, you know, it's how I guess masculine, um, Nigerian, you know, national history is. Even though, the, you know, there were a lot of women that played, um, significant roles in, you know, the, in the move to be more independent and even in Nigeria's political history, you know, some of whom are like I've mentioned, um, from Laila Samkuti, you know, Margaret Ockham Echo, for example. Um, and so, and I think that that's one part of, you know, what has been erased from, um, Nigerian history, which is the very, very significant role that, um, women played in, you know, in the push for independence and also even in, you know, early post-independence, uh, politics. Um, and also, I guess, also, you know, like also slightly, you know, slightly erased has also been, you know, the role of young people, you know, like how young people were able to organize themselves and, and push for and do like, you know, really significant things, significantly positive things and significantly um, negative things as well. Um, but regarding the, um, you know, the curriculum, like a history curriculum, I think, you know, history curriculums, you know, in the first place, you know, there's this whole thing with, um, which I've never actually, you know, which I've never really confirmed because I, I mean, you know, it, it sounds atrocious how, you know, just the idea that schools wouldn't teach, you know, history. Cause I mean, when I was in secondary school, um, history was one of the subjects you took, you know, when, as soon as you got to like SS1 and you went to, um, and you had to choose between, you know, arts, you know, science and, mm-hmm. you know, commercial. Yeah. So history was, I mean, so I mean, I'm still kind of, you know, getting my, getting my facts straight on that. You know, I'm not really sure as to whether it's been completely wiped out from, you know, curriculums. If it has, well, is it curricula? I, I mean, I don't know the English for that. But then if you, but, you know, but if it has, <laughs> but if it has, obviously, like, it's a very, very, you know, sad thing. But then, you know, speaking broader, you know, about African history, right? The thing about African history is that it's not necessarily mainstream. Now, African history, uh-huh or what we think we know about African history is a very, very small portion of, you know, a remarkably complex and dense, even as, you know, as, even as, you know, um, as, you know, constrained as it is, because of course, you know, looking for pre-colonial history, like I've mentioned, is a very difficult task. But, you know, the African history that even exists is, it's very tense as well, because you have this, you know, the beginnings with, you know, European writings about Africa and all that racist, uh-huh. you know, all that racist nonsense and shit, whatever. Yeah. And then you have, you know, Africans writing back and trying to, you know, you know, assert, you know, themselves as, you know, um, and correct some of the, you know, some of the, um, prejudices and all the racism that, you know, that fueled, you know, all that previous writing. 
But so it's a very interesting, you know, historiography, you know, that whole, you know, if you read along, you know, a timeline, like literally, if you read along a timeline of African history, it's, it's, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's actually an experience because you start off with, you know, some white guy just, you know, saying rubbish, literally. And then you mm-hmm. end with, you know, you end with hopefully, you know, a black woman telling him that, okay, what you were saying is rubbish. So there's that kind of boldness that you, you know, that you arrive at, you know, in contemporary African history. But the, my, you know, the issue with African history is that even with all these, you know, exciting things going on, it's still not mainstream. It's still not, you know, it's still not, it's still not a subject that people that, you know, kids in, you know, primary school, you know, can, you know, can consume. It's not been made to be palatable to young, you know, young people. For example, why I say that is because for a lot of people, for a lot of, you know, young Africans, for a lot of people like myself who end up being exposed or being, you know, or being, uh, what's the word now? Or having, you know, or, 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 or studying history. The time you get to study that history, you're an adult already, you know, like it's an adult subject. Like African history is an adult subject. Like it's, I, I don't know how to, I mean, the point I'm, I don't know how to explain the point I'm trying to make, you know, it's a kind of like, you know, closed it's like a kind of closed um meeting room and you only arrive at that meeting room when you've kind of had like maybe one or two masters and you know you can and you can you know wax you know and you can bring up like 10 different you know peer-reviewed journal articles that you can you know off the top of your head so it's a very very you know it's it's been made to be a very very complex you know area of thinking and an area of thought it's not been it it's not something that you know be. has been it doesn't no honestly it doesn't have yeah. to be right it doesn't have to be yeah, yeah. it doesn't have to be i mean it doesn't have i mean how of i mean i'll give you an example of you know of what i mean when i was young for example when i was much younger for example Powerpuff of girls had this episode of you know on feminism where they were talking about suzanne b anthony and I mean, like, well, when you look at, like, you know, Susan Bian, like, the history around that, it's some serious history, right? But then, uh-huh. but then you have this episode of this cartoon that is dedicated to, you know, enabling a younger generation of people understand or even know for the first time who this woman was. You don't necessarily have that yeah. with, you know, with, with Nigerian history or with African history. You don't have mm-hmm. an attempt to actually, you know, make it more mainstream. Although you have that, I mean, let me not even, you know, let me, I mean, you know, this is kind of all past and stuff, like past tense stuff. You have, I guess, some, you know, some, you know, when you look at, for example, Lupita and um, Deny, for example, you know, um, uh, working together on, is it Deny or, 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 or uh, I can't even remember who she's working with at the moment, but she's working on a film. Yeah. Um, sorry, it's, um, it's, oh my God, she does, um, how to get away with murder. <laughs> Viola oh, Davis, Viola yes. Davis. So when you look at the two of them and they're working on, you know, this, um, film about the Dahomey warriors, that is one of the ways in which, yeah. you know, you can, but then obviously it depends on, you know, how, I mean, cause it's going to be a very serious film, I'm imagining. But, you know, I'm hoping that with this interest in, you know, commercializing African history, even though, 
you know, you know, the critical side of my mind is thinking, oh, this is capitalism again, and it will probably be watered down. It won't be, you know, it won't be critical enough. It will probably show, you know, the women as, you know, saviors. And, you know, the history of Dahomey warriors is very complex, you know, because there's a lot of complicity even on their own parts as well in terms of, like, internal slavery and things like that. And I'm wondering, will, you know, will that history or will that depiction of them be, you know, true to that history? And I'm also wondering at the same time yeah. whether, you know, am I asking that because we place, you know, a burden on African history to be, you know, exact in the way that we don't necessarily exactly on, you know, on Western history, you know, Western history. That was what I was going to say. <laughs> you know, Western because history. Because like, like, you know, like Dunkirk and, exactly. and all of the Western history you know, exactly. interpretations, they're always so like malleable. They're always so exactly. like, you know. And, you know, there's, you know, there's this kind of like heroism, you know, that, you know, that they try and, yeah, you know, exactly. employ and like mm-hmm. Abraham Lincoln and all these people. And I'm kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to African history, right? And, you know, telling that narrative, of course, like, I feel like, you know, of course, we owe it to ourselves, you know, to be honest. Mm -hmm. We owe it to ourselves, you know, to, you know, to be critical about our depictions of, you know, our history, even if, you know, even if other countries, you know, are not. But then again, you know, it's that thing of whether we place, you know, whether it's a burden or whether it's my way of saying, innovate around that history, be more creative about that history, go deeper than the simple, you know, one-sided narratives of, you know, heroes versus villains. Because it's a very, I mean, I can't, I can't remember what I was reading, but it was criticizing Western, you know, Western style narratives and how Westerns in, I think it was probably Tino Atiri and how, um, Western style narratives you know, always emphasize on having, you know, this hero versus, you know, villain. Whereas, you know, when you look at, you know, historical African narratives, it's kind of more, it's never really a singular hero. You don't have an Achilles, for example, or a Hercules. You have a community of people, a band of warriors, you know, who um, go against another band of warriors or, you know, that kind of thing. The narratives are not so singular. They're not, you know, so you know, dependent or they're not all so dependent on having one single hero that is going to represent, you know, the entirety, you know, of that particular history or that particular narrative. You know, for example, when you read, you know, Usmain Sembene's um, God's Bits of Wood, it's set in Senegal and it's about this, you know, railway, there's like a railway strike in about, I think, in like around the 1940s. And it's very, you know, of course, it's like, you know, there are clear main characters, but it's a heavy cast. You know, I can't necessarily just tell you that, okay, that's the hero of the film. If we're going to make the, you know, if it were to be a film, you know, that would be the hero. We just focus on him because there's some really compelling, you know, Penda is a compelling, you know, female character, uh, for example. And, you know, it's a wide range of characters. Um, but yeah, so basically you have this, you know, huge cast that doesn't really conform to, you know, Western style. It, you know, just shows you a different uh, narrative style. And I think that that's probably what, you know, I'm hoping in, you know, the telling of African histories or even, you know, the marketing of African histories to younger groups, making it more, you know, mainstream, is that people don't, people don't think that, you know, Western style uh, marketing or Western style storytelling, you know, is the only way that you can um, make these stories, you know, more mainstream. 
And I, so, yeah, I just think, I think that's, you know, that's the thing with, you know, with African history. It's, it's literally how do you make it more accessible and not just, you know, yeah. and not just in, you know, in the sense of how do you just uncover the history? I also mean, how do you bring it to people? How do you, you know, yeah. ensure that the average person on the streets can actually engage with this history? Speaking of average people engaging with this history, mm-hmm. this one of the reasons why I, la- I love the internet and <laughs> social media and Twitter, to be specific, is that it allows a lot of people have the same conversation kind of at the same time. So mm. we're in a big dinner party and there are like mm-hmm. different pockets of conversations happening and there's like a thread or a theme or whatever. And because of Twitter now, mm-hmm. there are there's academic stuff is a little more accessible. So mm-hmm. I'm pl- I'm I'm part of Black Twitter, and you know <laughs> I follow some public some public intellectuals, mm-hmm. and there's like all of this knowledge sharing about you know mm-hmm. racism and sociology and feminism and all of these things mm-hmm. that honestly I may not have had access to otherwise. You know I wouldn't have known to you know look up some some certain authors or really mm. dig deep into yeah essentially so what what do you think about what social media is doing for like the nigerian public mm-hmm. intellectual like space mm-hmm. or you know is there a nigerian you know what's your what are your thoughts and feelings about that and how can social media foster a more engaging mm-hmm. and, and thoughtful populist mm-hmm. if you will mm-hmm. i don't know um, I don't what i just said made sense no it did it did i think um i think social media is very very powerful i think um i think it's very very powerful probably even dangerous right just because of how powerful <laughs> it's powerful it is yeah. um you know my thinking on social media in the last few years has evolved right so I first went from, you know, like I mentioned, you know, social justice, you know, not here for anything that you're saying. If it's not, you know, the right mm-hmm. things, if it's not backed up, if it's not da 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 And so, of course, social media, like most, you know, social gatherings or social um, interactions, um, you know, started, you know, becoming, um, you know, started separating into different pockets of or different groups of people mm-hmm. and very often it was groups of people that shared you know the same thinking the same ideologies the same beliefs and of course you know there's bound to be a lot of trouble with that in the sense that you're just repeating everything that you're saying you don't understand each other or you know across different groups better um and the same way you'd re- you'd realize that the same way that social media amplifies you know incredible thoughts and you know some I've seen some really really you know incredible thinkers on social on on Twitter uh, for example across different platforms really Twitter Instagram um, I've come across some really 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 incredible people but then at the same time you realize that the same way that social media amplifies you know incredible thoughts is also <laughs> is also the way, same way social media amplifies incredible stupidity it's <laughs> unbelievable you know and social media feeds a kind of you know authority bias 
you know, it, it thrives on numbers. You know, when you have a certain amount of followers, whatever you say is almost gold. Or when yeah. you have, or when a tweet has a certain amount of retweets, it's very difficult to disagree with that tweet because of course you think, well, if a thousand or, you know, 11,000 people have agreed with this tweet, then for me to disagree, I must be, I mean, I must be stupid, right? So mm. it has a way of kind of reinforcing or perpetuating very popular ideas. Now, popular mm. ideas can be, you know, critical ideas or very, you know, popularity, you know, the popularity of an idea, it's, it's, it doesn't really tell you much about the quality of that idea. It just tells you that it's been accepted by, you know, a certain amount of people. So now what you find is that People build, I mean, you find a lot of people who build themselves on, you know, the popularity of their ideas. And for me personally, it's a very scary thing. And it's kind of, even for myself, because you, you know, you, at best, you know, at the very least, you should always, not, not, you know, not at best, but at the very least, you should always hold yourself accountable. Um, there are things that you, you know, you know, that you tweet at a certain time that seem, you know, that seem right and that seem to make sense. But you should always, and I think that that's the advantage of Twitter, which is that you should always be able to go back to that tweet and flag that up as stupid, you know, because thinking evolves. I think that one thing with, with, with um, Twitter is it's so very present tense. It's so very, it's so very in the now that people tend to forget that there's a potential for their ideas to change over time. And that there's a potential for people's ideas or people to grow from their ideas that people aren't necessarily the ideas that they have. So when, for example, um, you know, your favorite, I don't know, your favorite writer or your favorite thinker says something that is out of the norm, you know, nowadays, especially there's, you know, there's all of that impatience, you know, there's, oh, this person is canceled. This person is this. And for me, it's kind of like, okay. You know, I mean, I get that. I don't think it's anyone's response. I mean, I don't think, you know, anyone owes anyone their audience. I don't think anyone owes anyone, you know, their ears. You know, like, you're, you're, it's well within your right to cancel, you know, whoever you feel should be canceled. But for me, you know, I'm kind of, I'm more interested in, you know, entertaining ideas. I'm more interested in understanding why people have certain ideas. And I think that that's the, that's one really good thing that, you know, social media gives you. It really gives you the ability to have a conversation with someone, you know, if, you know, if you really want to have that conversation, if the two of you really want to have that conversation, you can really have a conversation, you know, to understand another person's frame of reference. Now, why I mentioned frame of reference is because, you know, as, you know, I don't know, you know, what's your, you know, wh where, you know, you guys lean in terms of, you know, your own ideologies. But then as, you know, I find myself, you know, you know, you know, quite liberal, you know, in, um, in the very Western sense, right? So that, you know, the thing with, so I find myself to be quite liberal, right? So, this, but, and the thing with social media is that it allows me to, you know, understand, you know, how that, how liberalism, you know, you know, operates in a global sense. So what I mean by how that liberalism operates in a global sense is that what counts as liberal in America is not necessarily what counts as liberal in Nigeria. And you're looking at these forms of liberalism, you know, and, you know, 
occurring at the same time. So on my timeline, for example, my timeline is a mixture of people who live in different places, live in different contexts, and I'm seeing all these contexts interact very often on the same topic. So for me, it's kind of like, you know, this learning platform to kind of understand, you know, how people, you know, develop their ideas. And I think that it's something that is really missing from, you know, the discourse or the discussions that people have nowadays which is that we're so very ready to attack people, you know, for having mm. certain ideas that we're not really interested in why they consider those ideas to be normal. So one thing that I started to realize is that for on certain things, you know, on certain issues, people's ideas are formed because of what they think is normal. And that is why people get very attached to those ideas because they are centered in those ideas. People somehow, you know, somehow perhaps, you know, unfortunately get to believe that the world should be a certain way. And they then center themselves, you know, um, you know, towards, towards that way. Um, you know, I think of this, I think of this interview that I was listening to, um, you know, with, um, it was an NPR interview and it was with, um, Akweke, um, Emezi, and when she speaks of, you know, centeredness and how, you know, there are, you know, you, there's that multiplicity of centeredness. And then, but then, so for me, it's kind of applying that, you know, even to the way that people develop certain ideas in the, you know, in the sense that what I consider to be my own center and how I kind of, you know, form my own ideas about, you know, equality or who deserves what is influenced to some extent by what I've been raised or even, you know, what I've experienced to be normal. So my question then is, you know, is, you know, is, you know, is the discussion whether we should be trying to change, um, people's ideas or, or the not, or, or what, you know, occurs as normal, you know, to people, you know, why is it that people have, you know, um, people find it very easy, you know, to tell you that, oh, you know, um, this is racist, you know, this is racism, blah, 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 but have a difficulty in, you know, in understanding how sexism occurs, for example, you know, is it because, you know, and for me, it's kind of, you know, really engaging, you know, with that, with, you know, with that complex, you know, with that complexity, it's not necessarily just like, you know, um, it's not necessarily just like canceling people and telling them that, well, you don't, you understand racism, but you don't understand, you know, um, sexism. Obviously you're, you know, you're the enemy here and things like that. It's more going to the point of how, what kind of life, you know, does this person or has this person lived, you know, to make this person think that, you know, racism is not okay, is not okay, but sexism is. You know, what kind of, and you know, life is a very complex thing. And I think that, you know, social media enables you to actually, you know, understand to some extent without being in that very physical, you know, space with that person, where that centeredness, you know, is from or where that, you know, way of looking at the world comes from. So for me, you know, like it's, it's really, I mean, nowadays, you know, I, I, I think I have this, I had this, I have this policy, which is just what I'm, I mean, I would not honestly advise anyone to do this because it's not an easy thing to do, which is, you know, like, I mean, I don't, for example, I don't block people. I don't mute people because I think that it's important for me to know, you know, what other ideas are out there. Um, even those that negate, you know, my own, it's important for me to be able to engage with those ideas, to entertain those ideas without subscribing to those ideas. I think that people are very, um, I think that when you trust, you know, what you believe and when that trust is based on a constant assessment of what you believe, you know, you should be able to under, you know, you should be able to under, um, to entertain, you know, other ideas. Now, 
obviously that comes from, you know, my own specific reality. I wouldn't expect this from, you know, everybody that, you know, there's some people for whom, you know, a certain person holding a certain idea means death, for example, you know, and I would not expect, you know, that, you know, I would not expect people to, you know, want to kind of, you know, rationalize, you know, domestic abuse or things like that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that, I mean, for those who can, I suppose, um, or in the more general cases, we shouldn't have this hesitance, you know, to engage with what is out there. You know, what is out there is more complex. It's, com- it's more complex than anything that we can imagine. And I think that engaging with people gives us a sense of that complexity. It gives us a sense of what to expect, you know, from the world. So I, I don't of, want us to get stumped. I don't want us to get stumped. Is there any uh-huh. other questions? <laughs> Sorry, I just because to... we're running longer. <laughs> is there, are there yeah, any yeah, other yeah, questions? Yeah, yeah. But I feel like I have. Can I? Is, can I like just say something mm-hmm. in response to what Wai said, Madam Ifewa? Can I take? I don't know because I feel like you said it before. <laughs> <laughs> On a previous episode, maybe. <laughs> I, probably, I probably have said it before. Yeah, but um. Like I, I think there has to be some good faith, mm-hmm. um, like in in accepting ideas or whatever. Like you know, there has to be some ground rules. Or is this person like denying your humanity? Mm-hmm. Is this person literally after your genocide? Mm-hmm. Is this person, you know, this there's, there's there has to be some basis of good faith before mm-hmm. you can now say. But if the person is not the the, the opposing person is not a person in good faith, like I don't. I personally don't see any value mm-hmm. in in like such engagement. Oh yeah, it's I a waste know, of time. I mean, yeah. I guess like yeah, exactly. You know, and I guess people are equipped with different skill sets and tolerance levels mm-hmm. and whatever. But mm-hmm. me personally, I'm not an absolute. I'm not a free speech mm-hmm. absolutist. I don't believe in absolute um, freedom of speech. And I, like, for example, I will not entertain flat earthers, you know, like the world, it has been proven how many fucking centuries ago that the world is round. Like, what are you doing? You know, so like, I think that for me, Shad, there's a limit to my acceptance of who I'm going to engage with. And I... Oh, you can't, Amaya. Do you do you have any last questions? Because I just I have one more question, yeah. but I know that we're reaching the hour and a half mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mine isn't a question, but it was just in response to the education question mm-hmm. um, that you asked. I wanted mm-hmm. to share an experience that I had actually in primary school, um, and it's kind of something that has stuck with me for a really long time. So I remember it was in like social studies class or something like that, um, where our teacher like gave us a list of like um, time frames of in Nigerian history and told us to go home and talk to our parents about what they remember about you know those particular times in history and then we got back to class and then we had to share you know what it is that our parents had told us um, and of course one of the major time frames was you know the Biafra War. And so, um, I remember my dad, listen, yo, I was equipped for days. This man was telling me everything that happened from his perspective. You know, I mean, he was alive during the time he was displaced during the time. So his perspective on the issue was so different from someone whose parent wasn't evil. 
And it was so interesting to me to see how, like you said, like history is so malleable. Um, and the version of history that you hear is dependent on the person that's writing it. Um, mm-hmm. And so how it's it just always fascinated me how we teach, how we would teach or incorporate such um, huge variations in history. Like how, like how would we teach that to accommodate the different experiences that occurred at the time, you know? But that wasn't a question. That was just a thought. <laughs> mm, mm. No, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a valid thought, to be honest. It's, I, you know, it's, it's, it's that thing of, you know, recognizing that, you know, there are multiple narratives, you know, to a topic as sensitive as the Biafran war, you know, mm-hmm. the narratives that we, you know, if at all we even hear anything, you know, on the war, mm-hmm. I feel like the narratives that we have suggest, you know, like, you know, that it was a kind of, you know, it's a kind of two-side thing. You know, you have the Nigerian story and you have the Biafra story. But then, of course, you know, when you read into the war, you realize that it was a very, very, very complex um, situation. You have, of course, you know, the multiple other ethnic groups which had their own, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, who played, you know, significant parts, you know, in the war, but also had their own you know, views on what the war meant to them and what, you know, mm-hmm. what, you know, the significance of their involvement in the war was. Well, you don't hear all of that. You know, it's it's one mm-hmm. it's one of the ways in which that history has just been, you know, simplified or, you know, just been abstracted. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and you know for you know for, for that part of the you know of the history erased really. So, you know, my own you know, my thing is if you're building, if you're developing curricula, if you're, if you're, um, trying to, you know, um, teach, you know, students, you know, this history, how do you do it in such a way that, you know, takes into account those multiple narratives? How do you do it in a way that actually, you know, really engages with the truth of that, you know, of that time period? It's, I mean, it's a very, I mean, we're at a point where, you know, we've had such a lag in historical, you know, in investment in history that, you know, to even do that will be, it's not going to be an easy task, really. This is, you know, you know, the thing with history is that when you look at, you know, places that have managed to, you know, develop their histories and, and are constantly engaging with their history, you realize that it's an accumulative process. It's not just, you know, erecting a statue today and then just leaving it it's it it's a process of constant engagement it's you know that person who comes back and actually says wait why do we have this statue of this person he was racist it's that person who comes back and says actually we should have you know more statues of you know women or more statues of you know young people doing things it's it's or 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 more you know or more outlets dedicated to, you know, middle class or lower class people, you know, it's, 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 it's a constant, like, you know, re-engagement with, with history. And we don't even, you know, we don't even have that because we don't even have those foundations yet. You know, those, you know, those things that we can look at and say, actually, this needs to be improved on. So for us, it's for a lot of time, for, you know, for, you know, for a lot of things, it's us just starting from scratch and from scratch. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's a very, I mean, it's a very tough, you know, place to be in, but of course the work needs to be done. So, I mean, with that being said, I had one more question, but that feels sure. like a, a right place to end, unless you guys feel like the last question I had was a good question. 
Depends. I'm trying to democratic. Yeah. Mom, can, you said amen already. Church closed. Amen. The preacher left. <laughs> we took the offering. We're good. <laughs> All right. Um, just briefly share whatever we're reading watching or listening so okay well uh coming to you live from indianapolis my recommendation for the week um i've been listening to pentatonix's new album um listen i'm not out here judging you wow i'm not out here judging you just let me be they're great they're fantastic and i love they are so yeah I've been I've been listening to Pentatonix's that's such a weird word to say. But I've been listening to their new album. I think it's um a good deviation from the Christmas music, which I mean I love absolutely, but yeah, that's what I've been listening to. Okay. Okay, this is Amayo. I am still watching The Crown, the Netflix T V series. Oh, that's um, but I'm <laughs> yes, it is. It's also very annoying, like I said on our last recording. <laughs> Um, but I will not go back into that. Um, but I'm also listening to um, Cardi B's album and J. Cole's album. Um, I'm not really one for like, <laughs> I'm not really like a crazy hip hop fan or rap mm. fan. But I just feel like there's just so much great content that's being released. I'm almost overwhelmed with all this new I'm not saying that you know Cardi B is the best rapper on earth but I'm just I have to respect like her lyrical whoever writes her yeah her hustle like her personality and how it shows in her music and how she's very authentic I think she's being she's staying true to herself and then of course J. Cole's album is just like the whole concept of you know whether it's kids on drugs and you know it's it's he's I think like he has that platform and he's trying to you know, send the message out and hopefully people listen. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so for me, um, I'm currently uh, listening to, so I've been obsessed. I mean, it's probably even, I mean, I should, I should have probably moved on by now, but I'm current, I'm still listening to um, Burner Boys Outside. Um, I think oh, I love it. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, I think it's brilliant. I think, it is. Um, I think it's, I mean, why I like it, it's, it's, it's like, it's like a confluence of, you know, different, like, you know, um, diasporic elements, really. It's like, it's Afrobeats, it's, you know, dancehall, it's rap, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's speaking Yoruba on, you know, on the beat, it's pigeon, everything just, you know, it's literally, <laughs> it's, li- <laughs> I mean, it's literally like a Pangea of blackness, really. <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's, it's, it's brilliant. Um, I'm reading, um, so reading, my reading is very, um, it's very all over the place at the moment because I've been trying to, um, I'm supposed to be giving a, um, talk in Munich on Wednesday, um, about, um, it's about, it's really, it's really about Lagos and I think, um, um, African imaginaries and I guess some thoughts on, you know, so, um, the surveillance of black people. Um, so I'm at the moment, I'm reading Teju Cole's Known and Strange Things. I'm reading Burn This Book, um, by Toni Morrison. These are just like, you know, essay collections by, um, by black people, <laughs> really, <laughs> obviously by incredible, <laughs> incredible black people. I'm also reading, um, Exit West by Mohsin Hamid. It's this incredible, it's an incredible story. Um, it's, a, it's an incredible, um, fiction story about um, two 
um, lovers who have to escape, um, you know, from their they become refugees um, in their country and they have to um, escape through uh, magical doors and obviously lead people, you know, through those magical doors as well. But it's, I mean, it's 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 completely it's utter brilliance. Um, yeah, so I think that yeah, I mean those those three really uh, I'm reading at the moment, and then I'm also just reading some, you know. I'm always reading essays, um, just different essays from time to time. Um, and yeah. yeah, but those are like, in terms of books, those are what I'm currently, what I'm currently yeah. on. And, and I actually forgot to mention in your bio at the beginning that you are, um, a contributor for the anthology Lagos Noir. Yes. Yes, I am. In, yes, I am. <laughs> in June. Yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot to mention it along with some other high profile writers. So, yeah, so, I mean, is there going to be published? Is there going to be a Nigerian publisher? Can we buy it in Nigeria? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's going to be. I mean, it's. I, I think it's. It's going to be everywhere. Um, it's. I mean, it's an incredible okay. book. I think so. I'm really, really, you know, pleased to be a part of that. Yeah, um, Lagos Noir. Everybody, check that out. Um, Ife. Yes. So I've been kind of buried with work, so I haven't really done a lot of media consumption but i finally saw beachella and got my entire life <laughs> so that is so what I. I watched that's the most recent thing i watched and that woman oh my god no, she um, is. honestly yeah. don't let me even start yeah. don't let me start <laughs> legendary I mean, I mean i mean yeah okay no, beyonce is something else all right let's just yeah i know <sighs> yeah yeah um and i am reading stay with me by ayobami adebayo that is it's an incredible i just started it i'm like yeah i'm like page one (laughs) 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 when i literally (laughs) just opened at least that's more than what some people have done so we'll take it We'll yeah, I'm reading it for a book club. So okay, yeah. okay, okay. Those, those are my media things. Nice. Um, this is yeah. a thing. Where... Oh wait, wait, wait. Oh. The praise. Oh, uh-uh. Sorry, Tiludi. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hey, I'm not being no. I'm not Jess. Sorry, If you are my love. <laughs> no, carry. No, sorry, carry. No, carry. Yeah, no, no, that's it. That's it. That's that's that's. All right, so this is Ifeanyiwa. I am reading this bridge called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color. And I'm really enjoying it and slowly going through it. It's, it's um, for me, uh, any nonfiction anthology is just hard to get through. And this has a ton of essays and articles in there. Um, and so far, it's been really great. It's been really compelling there's been one contributor, um, her, I believe she's Japanese American. So some of her essays have been particularly like enlightening for me, like hearing about her perspective and how Asian women are usually like erased or made invisible in, you know, women's movements and all of that. So it was originally released in 1981, but it's been reissued a few times. And it's one of those texts that people usually recommend to anyone who's interested in reading any like academic feminist text that encompasses non-white um feminists um so that's what i'm reading i'm listening to this musician by the name of jordan reiki reiki um he's just just if you if you want anything that will calm you 
put you in a zen space. He's somebody I would recommend. Um, his album, Wallflower, is really great. His album, Cloak, is also really fantastic. So I would recommend him for anybody who's looking for like chill music vibes. Um, I haven't watched a lot recently, um, but something that I'm trying to keep to watch weekly is um, Blackish. Um, and last week or so they had an episode where the, the couple were like having marital issues and I'm just like, what the hell is happening? Because it's yeah, typically such a happy reaction. show and I'm like, yeah. guys, you're getting serious. I wasn't ready. So that's something I'm watching. But yeah, um, that being said, thank you so, so much, Wale, for, mm-hmm. um, accepting our invitation, for no, taking no the time to join all. us, for sharing your immense knowledge with us thank you, um, thank but you. Also- <laughs> um, a reminder of the praise mm-hmm. that you were showering us with almost forgot oh no no so what i was i mean what i was saying was yes um i mean i get so i was saying that i get all kinds of um emails um from time like and they range from you know um emails on you know praising you know the republic and what we do to emails just that are just you know ridiculous you know poorly you know um typed and all of that so <laughs> so i mean it's just re- it's really refreshing because i think that one of my uh one of my goals for this year was you know for more uh visibility because i have this thing where mm. i think that um you know that people who are trying to do the kind of work that I do are typically very, um, try, you know, we typically try to work, you know, in the back end, outside of line, outside of the limelight and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, so this year for me was kind of just being more visible with the work. I think that, you know, with Nigeria, you know, with the way Nigeria is, you know, it's all just like really a lot of noise when it comes to, you know, public discourse. So I just thought, you know, let, let me be more mm. visible. So it was really refreshing when I got, you know, the email and I looked, you know, I looked up the podcast and, you know, um, for me, it's, you know, it's very, I mean, it's, it's always really good to, you know, speak to people who are, you know, young and really interested in, you know, genuinely interested in, you know, what it means to be Nigerian, what it means to be, you know, black and, you know, you know, black abroad, black, you know, in with or in or within, you know, African spaces and things like that. And I think it's always really refreshing to be able to have, you know, really engaging conversations about, you know, really serious stuff because it's really important that you know, young people are able to have these conversations and that these conversations are documented and archived, right? So for me, you know, this podcast is obviously it's necessary. It's um it's also i mean it's also really refreshing right because it's a right blend of um it's a right blend of everything that i guess young people are interested in so there's no attempt to kind of pretend you know um Uh that we're not you know that (laughs) that some things are more important than other things um because in my mind for example pop culture is just as important as critical theory so (laughs) Uh so i think and i like meeting people who have that kind of appreciation for um for you know whether it's the things that we read or it's the things that we watch or you know listen to it's just always really good to be surrounded by people who are able to have you know really good discussions around those things so yeah 
Wally. Wally, first of all, thank you for calling us young. Claim those blessings, girl. Claim them. Very young. You know, young in the Nigerian sense. You know, like your, pro, your, your president just said. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just. Age is a funny thing. So, age is a funny thing. We said history was a funny thing. Age is also a very funny thing. But thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of Not Your Bye. 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 Bye.